For the 35th anniversary of the Macintosh, which officially came out in America on January 24th, 1984, I dug into my archive of interviews from researching my book, The Secret History of Mac Gaming. I'd been hoping to release this special bonus thing on that day, but I wasn't able to find the time to do the audio cleanup work. So as a compromise, I put it up in article form on Medium and postponed the audio version until now. If you've read the Medium article, this won't contain anything new, although it will give you the chance to actually hear the people talking. If not, sit back and enjoy. I'll give you the brief intro spiel and then get into the excerpts. One of the reasons I wrote the book is that I believe the Mac, through its ideas, its innovations, and its user-friendliness, changed video games. And these comments from developers, I think, really paint a picture in support of that notion. They speak of a machine so revolutionary, so effortlessly brilliant, that they were compelled to make something truly great. Insanely great, even, to borrow a phrase. And most of them did, if not right away, then later on, thanks to the lessons they learned early in the Mac's life. To name just a few of them, Robin and Rand Miller went on to create Myst, the adventure game that sold CD-ROM drives, dominated sales charts, and showed the public that video games really could be artful and clever and entrancing to a mass audience. Brian Thomas made If Monks Had Max, a thoughtful collection of interactive hypercard stacks that earned the admiration of some of the greatest minds in science and technology. That's a story that I told in podcast form for my other show, Ludophilia. And Charlie Jackson helmed one of the best software houses of the late 1980s, Silicon Beach Software, and then helped Jonathan Gay bring Flash to market. And then Tony Goodman, who wasn't, wasn't a Mac game developer specifically, but he went on to co-create hit strategy game franchise, Age of Empires. And that's just a few of them. There's lots more. Now, first up, we have Gordon Walton. He was a games industry professional for about as long as the Mac's been around. He co-founded simulation game specialists Digital Illusions in early 1985, then later worked at the lights of Origin, Sony, Bioware, Maxis, Konami, and Kesmai Corporation, which leads into his latest venture, MMO Crowfall. Yep, I actually uh, was building games on Elisa before there was a Mac, because that was the the only way you could do it then saw the Lisa and said, Hey, this is going to be cool. And you know, it's a whole different way of thinking about user interfaces and how we're going to build stuff. And we actually bought Pascal and started writing a game on the, on the Lisa before they even announced the Mac. And then they announced the Mac and I go, okay, this could really be good. (laughs) This could really be interesting. Not knowing then, you know, what 128K actually meant, <laughs> how terrible that was going to be at the time. But it still was cool. Mm. So what was it about the the interface that that so captured you? Well, I think, 
you know, at the time, just thinking about, so think about what the, where the world was, right? So I'd done games early on the Commodore, uh, on the Commodore PET. I'd done a little bit of work on the TRS-80. I'd started, I'd done a little tiny bit of work on the Apple II. But what I'd found is, you know, my uh, ability to be, to compete uh, in the Apple II world meant you had to be an awesome assembly language program. Right. It was, you know, the, there were some really great people doing some really awesome games. And I was, you know, I had a degree in computer science. Um, and when I first saw the Lisa in particular and started playing with it, I went, wow, this is going to be, you know, it's an opportunity for like a computer scientist who's not a, a bit wizard, you know, who, uh, and I wrote plenty of assembly code in my time, right? But, to be really, really good at it is a different thing than just kind of knowing how to do it. And I thought, oh, wow, I can probably write real games in a higher level language on this kind of, um, on top of this kind of operating system that are going to be more sophisticated and more interesting than what we can do in this, you know, the tiny amount of memory and graphics uh, that we were able to do with, you know, at that time, the 64K, you know, 8-bit processor uh, computers that were out there. So for me, it was, I actually had kind of stopped making games at some point and it reinvigorated me to actually come back and make games again because the, uh, the power was there, you know, the power of the processor. I was a computer science and double E, um, minor, uh, person that had actually built a 68,000 computer, um, you know, while I was in school. So I knew the processor, and I knew the assembly language for the processor, but the, the amount of power that was there versus uh, 6502 was night and day. I mean, literally night and day. So uh, for me, it was just an opportunity to go, wow, we could do some really, you know, games that we wouldn't have even thought about doing on a regular computer. And to me, that opportunity space is what got me super enthused about building something. So I thought about, you know, kind of the, the level and, and size of games I could build went up by a factor of 10 easily. And so that, that's what enthused me. That's what made me jump in with both feet and go, wow, we, you know, it's a new platform. It's a, it's, it's a place where somebody with a real computer science background has a, a little bit of an unfair advantage over maybe a hacker. And it got me excited. And next thing you know, I'm in deep trouble. I'm making games for a living. <laughs> I knew how to write, um, you know, how to simulate stuff in the computer already. And what was interesting about the Macintosh platform was the UI. Um, there was a whole bunch of degrees of freedom in the UI that we didn't have before. You know, I, I, done games and did games after and you'd have to say you know where's my keyboard overlay because i got a key for every every function right and i have to remember which key goes with which function and with the macintosh you know the interface was on the screen so suddenly you were in a visual world uh where you could make the interfaces contextual to what you were happened to be doing at the time and you could also make them blend in so in the idea of a 
simulator, particularly a vehicle simulator, you know, you would say, oh, well, I need to go left or right, or I need to go up or down, I need to shoot something. There's a button for shooting something. Awesome. Right? I don't have to remember a key. And if you look at the games that were built for the non-GUI systems at the time, you know, they, they tend to, they literally would come with a keyboard overlay, like a, a printed out thing that folded out and then you laid it over your keyboard and it had stuff around the edge to show you what key you did what thing for for games. And every game had a different one too, of course. Uh, you know, a different set of keys doing a different set of things. So the GUIs in, in the Macintosh and later in the Amiga ST, I mean the Amiga and the Atari ST, you know, changed everything around that. And even after that, Windows. I mean, one of the things um, that we built because we were doing games, you know, we were quite often doing games work for hire for one of the big publishers is we actually built ourselves a set of Mac libraries and we published DOS games that ran a Mac GUI before, before windows came out. So, you know, cause remember the Macintosh ROM was like a 64 K thing. It wasn't that big. And a buddy of mine, uh, Rob Brannon, um, was a hotshot PC programmer and also worked on Mac. And I said, can't you give us a menu system and the rest of the stuff that we use, you know, all the time for our games? He says, sure. And he whipped it up together and we shipped a couple of games that way where we could literally, uh, the Macintosh interface was on the, on a DOS machine. Uh, and it didn't have the differences that of course, windows later had from the Macintosh, you know, it was a one button system. And it was a hold system rather than a click system like the Windows, right? You'd have to hold to keep the menus down on a Mac. But on Windows, you click it once and the menu stays down. So it, it wasn't using Windows conventions because they didn't exist yet. We, we were just emulating a Mac. It was fun. Daryl Myers joins General Computer Corporation or GCC for short, in 1982 as an artist for the company's home console conversions of Atari games, as well as their own original arcade titles. After Atari blew up, GCC started to explore other options, and one of those was Apple's new computer, the Macintosh. They asked Daryl, who was a computer novice, to work on a Missile Command clone called Ground Zero. While Daryl would go on to focus his career more on graphic design outside of the games industry, he later served as designer and artist on the excellent Mac puzzle game Spin Doctor, later re-released as Clockworks, which I really love. Yeah, it was definitely a step up. I mean, I you know, and sure, of course, the graphics were done in Mac Paint. You know, that was pretty much what came with the Mac, and that's all there was, obviously, at the time. And um, oh, you know, it was a blast to work on and a thrill. I mean, up to that point, a computer, as far as I knew was something you had to, you know, you typed in lines of type, obscure lines of type. I mean, I didn't know at that point that a computer was capable of doing excuse, what the Macintosh did, you know, being able to draw things. I just didn't think that was doable. Um, I didn't know anything about it. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, it was, it was a, a thrill at the time. It, it's it's only you know laughable in retrospect. Certainly, you know, it was an amazing breakthrough at the time. Like I said, for me, like when I was in high school, 
I didn't take any computer classes. I graduated high school in 73. And uh, although there were a couple of classes, but and and back then, I believe they were even using punch cards. You know, you'd have to do, a, um, you know, you'd set up your I don't even know how it worked, but, you know, you'd set up the IBM punch cards and it would take you a week to get back your compiled program or whatever it was. But um, but so I didn't know that a computer could do what it did. And I'd never don't believe I'd ever heard of a mouse or anything. So the idea you could just hold down a button and drag the mouse and make a line or hold the shift key and draw a straight line. And you could zoom in on it and click here and there. And there was, it was a, I mean, compared to anything else I'd seen, it was such a, such a straightforward, intuitive process that, yeah, it was, um, it was just, um, I mean, it may made a computer accessible to me or I could do something on it that, you know, previously I hadn't really been able to use computers for anything. I literally didn't know how you would use a computer. And, um, I think the other thing that struck me was, um, that although the rest, well, again, I had no basis for deciding how high or low the resolution was. So as you say, it was, it was a, a great thing. And I guess thinking back visually, seeing it, the, the, the screen itself, I think what struck me was the clarity of the pixels, you know, if you look at, um, you know, even PCs at that time, or even for quite a few years after, um, there's always, you know, you've got, um, uh, you know, you've got phosphorus on the screen. So you, you get little, little blurry edges and stuff. And the pixels just to, to my memory, at least they were just, they were there and they were at, you know, and they just ended. There were squares and the dot and, where it was, it wasn't. Where it wasn't, it wasn't. It was as crisp as you can imagine. And that struck me, you know, just how precise the visual aspect of it was. Rand Miller and his younger brother Robin were world famous in the 90s. The genius pair behind mega-hit, mega-influential games Mist and Riven. But before they could make either of those, the brothers first needed to explore the interactive entertainment world in a few smaller projects. The arrival of Hypercard in 1987 was their ticket to do that, and it allowed them to create three wonderful, whimsical children's games, beginning with the manhole that would shape the future of computer game design far more than they get credit for. And that's another story that I explored in my other podcast, Ludophilia, as well as in my book, and in a live stream I did with Robin. We'll hear from Rand first. So yeah, I, I was very into uh, computer games from a pretty early age, and I would love to tell you that I thought I could make a living doing it, but um, I, I never knew that, but I knew I wanted to be a programmer and got into it um, then, you know, uh, in, in, as any classes I could take, I took. Um, were you uh, jumping onto the Macintosh right away when it came out? Yeah, that's a, an interesting story. So I, you know, I I um, I continued to mess around with computers, and I had some pretty obscure ones. I didn't have a lot of money, and got married, had kids, but um, I had a, a relative who was working at a computer store in 1983. And toward the end of the year, he brought home this brochure 
and said, Apple's coming out with this new machine. I'd never had an Apple computer even. Um, couldn't afford it. I'd had less expensive. But um, I got a job working at a bank, programming at a bank, and you know was making okay money. But when I saw the brochure for the Macintosh, I, it was like, well, I'm, I'm getting this one. I, I want this. So I ended up getting probably the first Mac that they delivered to that store, the original. Um, and some of it was, I was, I loved the graphics and the fonts and the WYSIWYG. I, you know, I always, without knowing that those things were important to me, um, I, you know, I, when I saw the Mac, I realized just exactly how important they were to me, probably like a lot of people at the time. And so it really kind of, uh, got my attention and I plopped a lot of money down on a, on, on the Mac when it first came out. Um, now, so, uh, as I'm sure, you know, you couldn't, it wasn't really easy to, to program on the Mac in those first few years. Did you, d- did you try to, to learn at all though? I did. It was, um, yeah, it was not easy. In fact, I bought all the inside Mac books. Um, it was so new. Everything that they had done in the Mac was so interesting and so new. I, I wanted to learn to program, but I also wanted to learn, you know, what was behind this. So all those volumes of inside Mac I bought, I read them from cover to cover and it made me more impressed with the effort behind it, the little things that they had put into the interface and the design design decisions that they had made. I mean, subtle little things that I think most people wouldn't notice that just blew me away. Um, I, you know, I had gone into programming from a, from a uh, business point of view. So I was learning business languages for banking and that kind of thing. Um, I had done some machine language programming, uh, for games earlier, but just, you know, my own personal stuff. Um, and so I had a, I had a, you know, some fairly decent exposure to gaming, but I, I don't know. And I, I love problem solving, but, um, but I don't know that I was really into, um, getting down and deep into esoteric programming languages. So, yeah, you know, I, I like it when the, the high level languages that the computer does some of the work for you. And the Mac was no exception. I was mesmerized by making my own fonts and um, using some of the new tools that were coming out. Um, there were graphical database um, databases that were coming out that I thought were just super, you know, very intriguing. One of them was called Helix. And I thought, boy, this is a whole new way to look at data. And, uh, um, and then spreadsheets, the way those were interpreted on the Mac with the mouse. I mean, there's just a lot going on. And I was, think I was really busy using tools as opposed to digging down deeper into the, uh, programming itself. Were you playing many of the early Mac games? Uh, yes. Yeah. I, you know, that was my, um, I'd spent a lot of money, so I was definitely vested in the platform. And so I, um, I bought you know, a lot of those early games. I started a Macintosh users group in uh, where I was living at the time. Um, we exchanged information, and I designed fonts and put them on the public domain. And 
Um, so I had a, a connection with a large community and I, I was always interested in the gaming aspect because that's what my, you know, that's what got me interested in computers. And so I would play some and I would explore some and I, um, you know, there was, I was always doing little games in the background, but nothing big, but I remember seeing, um, you know, the game started doing interesting things on the Mac. Dark Castle came out and early, you know, that one was pretty interesting. Um, um, you know, there were, I'm trying to think of other ones. Uh, there was one that was, I think inspired us a bit. Uh, looking back, that was you started out in a in a bathroom, like you had been knocked out and on the floor of a bathroom. That's deja vu. Yeah, deja vu. That's what it was. And so I think that one, um, my brother and I were both kind of intrigued by that. It was a, it was an interesting concept. While Rand was the technically minded brother, Robin leaned more towards music and art skills that they would combine to brilliant effect in each of Cyan's games, up until Robin left the company after the release of Riven to pursue other forms of storytelling like film. The Mac would prove to be a fantastic enabler for his talents though, both in the early days when he would hand draw black and white graphics with a mouse, and later on when he had more sophisticated 3D graphics tools. When the Mac first came out, I was sort of head over heels about that about the Mac. Before then, I didn't have much interest in computers. Um, but when the Mac came out, I kind of realized, oh, computers can allow me to achieve things. Um, and so I started using, like for example, the year that Photoshop came out, I started using Photoshop. The year that Illustrator came out, I started using Illustrator. Um, and when um, I, there was, um, HyperCard was a tool we started using uh, immediately when it came out. And I started using that. Um, and I delved into those programs deeply, as deeply as I was I could. Um, but I was not a programmer. So as far as what the computers could allow me to do in terms of, I guess, my art, um, I loved them. I still do. <laughs> um but um, I, I, I'm kind of a geek in that way. <laughs> but I've never been a programmer. Um, so I think the combination of me and Rand and our particular interests and uh, skills coming together, we were kind of a, we were a good match for one another. Rand has more of the programming interests and talents. And I had more of the art talents, but we both had a real passion about technology and computers and what computers could do to, with art, for art, and, um, and for our own interests in storytelling and art. And, um, and we really believed that, you know, especially when the Macintosh came along, um, because it was the one platform that it really was clear to us that it was going to heighten our abilities to do stuff in the arts. Um, we really believed that, you know, we could do something um, different. Um, and um, 
And uh, that was, you know, there was a few products we did before Mist, and and those were mostly children's worlds, and um, and and we were empowered by our our computers. We were totally empowered by our computers, and um, we made things. We recognized it at the times. So we made these worlds that we could have never ever done any other way. Um, and it was ex- such an exciting moment for our own personal histories to be able to achieve that. Um, and then Mist was sort of an evolution, creating those same types of worlds, but for an older audience. And um, so that was all like, you know, yeah, we were, we were totally into the whole technology aspect of all of that. And also something else, you know, about all that is the interface um, aspect of all of that. Um, we wanted to tell a story when it came to Mist. I'm kind of jumping all over the place. We wanted to tell a story when it came to Mist. We, that was our, that was a main goal of ours, um, to tell a story interactively, non-linearly. Uh, we didn't really know if we could achieve that. Um, it was to a large part, kind of an experiment. It was a technological experiment. It was an artistic experiment. And we thought we would just jump in and try it and see what would happen. Um, but one of the biggest parts of that technologically speaking, and I guess, and artistically speaking was the interface because what, you know, what, would that interface exactly be? Um, yeah, we really had, you know, before we made Mist, we just had no clear conception of what it would be. Um, we had to kind of um, create it as we were making it. And, you know, it's easy in hindsight to look at Mist and say, oh, that's a very easy interface, but um, we wanted it to be an invisible interface. And, um and to feel like it wasn't there and um and so that was another part of our creation of of the world that um that was that came out of our love for technology and our love for the computers we were using at the time and those computers were so they featured the ease of use and um and we really admired that so much, which is a funny thing that we then, you know, we loved that in our, the computers we were using at the time. And then we, you know, really wanted to create a world that was not just cinematic um, and felt kind of film-like and movie-like, you know, and just um, brought that aspect into the world, but also uh, was, you know, invisible feeling and, it, um, because it was, you know, just perfectly easy to use. Um, so we were kind of bringing in a lot of different, you know, we were kind of picking things from a lot of different areas that we liked. And then a lot of that came from the computers we were using. I forget your original question. <laughs> Hopefully there's bits and pieces you can you can use. <laughs>
Now we move on to David Allen Smith, one of the programming geniuses of artificial intelligence pioneer Richard Greenblatt's MIT spin-off company, Lisp Machines Incorporated. David was inspired by the Mac to make his dream game project, The Colony, a three-dimensional adventure game set on another world, wherein you could actually visit the distant mountains you see in the background. Colony was remarkable for its world-building and its many technical innovations, but its sadistic design limited its appeal. Still, it was responsible for author Tom Clancy's entry into video games, and more recently it served as a key inspiration for the critically acclaimed indie hit Return of the Oprah Dinn by Lucas Pope. David's current work has him exploring the future of VR and AR. The Mac was an inspiration. I, I think it, it set a really fantastic bar for us. You know, I, I, I still think today that Mac Paint's probably the best application ever written. It, it was like perfect in, in so many ways. And, and that was really what caused me, I, I think sort of set me to create what I created because it was, it was such a high bar that you wanted to, you wanted to build something special for the Mac where, you know, for the PC, the stuff out there was really interesting. But it, it wasn't the same. It wasn't that same high bar that you had in terms of user experience, user, you know, thinking about what, uh, what it really meant to create something that was, um, uh, it was certainly new, but it was a lot more than that. It was user-centric. And I, I think that was, uh, that was a key element of the whole thing. I, I really, uh, I really loved that. And I, I, I you know, I got my Mac literally the first day you could get one if, uh, as a, you know, sort of a peon, as a common person. Uh, but, uh, you know, as I got to understand it and dive deep into it, you know, that aesthetic was, became really a centerpiece of what, what, what it was we did. And, and that actually was true for everybody. Rand and Robin Miller kind of embraced that as much as anybody, I think that I, I think of them as the quintessential, you know, early Mac game developers. You know, they, they really got it more than anyone. I mean, I, I think I, I did a pretty good job too, but I, I think they they really and, and honestly, it wasn't Mist that really mattered to me. It was the earlier stuff like Osmo, Osmo and the one before that. The manhole. Manhole. I, I still think of it as the best, maybe the best game on the Mac because it was so quintessentially Mac-ish, you know? It was, it was absolutely brilliant and beautiful and surreal as the Mac was, you know? It was, a, it was such a, a different, um, it was a different world. It was literally, you know, you're being introduced to a new, a new reality. Which I find, uh, you know, I, I I just totally, totally love that. It's funny, by the way. You know, I, you probably don't know much about me, but I, I wound up working with Alan Kay for about twenty years, and Alan was the guy who created the um, uh, that interface at Xerox Park, the the Alto. So he and I are partners. We still work together, uh, but you know, it was sort of. Uh, my, literally, my first introduction to Alan's work was the Macintosh, which is really kind of cool. <laughs> uh, 
but uh, I had I had a good time with that. How how did he feel about the Mac? He well, he, I don't know the quote that he gave when it came out is that so it was the first computer worthy of criticism, which is very high praise. Uh, you know, it wasn't it wasn't perfect, but it was on the right track. Um, he, um, but he's the first who's very difficult to satisfy, by the way. I mean, he, he had created, he and his team had created the Alpha, and there's a story, and this is true, uh, that he said, you know, the Alpha's really great and all, but let's just throw it away and start over. And, uh, he said, let's burn, and literally the term was burn the disc packs, so everything was in these big discs. Uh, that were like uh, two feet wide. Uh, they call them disc packs. You pick them up and drop them into the disc reader and stuff. And he said, let's burn them. Let's just like start from scratch. And the team who had created the Alto said, you're crazy. You're out of your mind because this stuff is so good. And uh, he, th- th- that meeting actually occurred uh, at an offsite, and he left the meeting in tears, and he resigned from Xerox soon after because he thought that the Alto, which is the real um, um, the thing that Jobs saw, what Steve Jobs saw was the Alto. Uh, he, he felt that it was nowhere near good enough, and so Jobs saw that and saw. He, you know, he, did, he didn't see the fact that it's object-oriented programming-based system. He didn't see the Ethernet, which was also invented there. And, and he didn't see that. And what he saw was this beautiful interface. So I, I saw Mac Paint, and I thought, that, that's the way you need to think about what anything should be. Uh, a game, uh, an application. So I, I built Colony around that paradigm, and uh, that was a good paradigm. I think you know a lot of games still do that, um, and the idea of using a mouse to control your where you are, what you're looking at. Uh, Colony didn't have quite the mouse look interface that um, Carmack came up with later, but it was pretty pretty close. But uh, yeah, I mean, it all came out of uh, out of Alan's work and. and uh, Atkinson's work. Atkinson, I think, was so critically important. Uh, he, he created, obviously, the QuickDraw, which allowed us to build these really great apps, these really great games. But he created MacPaint. And MacPaint, I still look at, like I said, is the, probably the most perfect application ever written. It's stunning. You look at it, and you know immediately how to use it. And the, the power of that, it allows any idiot to be a great artist. There's something magical about it. And, you know, the manual, remember they used to, the, the ads, they, they'd have the, the manual for Mac, they drop it and it just sort of flutters down. It was only, it was really only two pages. You know, you open it up and just do this and do this. And it, it was absolutely brilliant. And, and, and you have to, Look at those apps, those first apps, as a thing that um, informed us as game designers for what what this platform is really about. Uh, you know, it wasn't it wasn't just like oh well, it's a it's a new computer. It was a completely new way of thinking 
about uh, what computing meant, what it what it meant to have that interaction, how it, what it meant to to uh, you know explore that new world, and and, it, and so when I wrote Colony. If you look at Colony, you look at Mackey and Kovaleva, they're pretty damn similar because I had a little, you know, control panel to the left, which is almost identical to the location of Mackey. And then I had this virtual world, it happened to be a 3D world, but the Atkinson had done a, a virtual paper world, you know, which is which just as realistic and, and just as, uh, I, I think, um, as deep as what I did with calling. So, so it was a very, you know, I, I sort of thought all I was doing is extending their paradigm slightly. Cause they, I mean, they already had the idea of virtual systems, a virtual paper was there. So when you go into a virtual world, it was, uh, it was kind of an obvious next step. So it, I really was, um, uh, I, I was extraordinarily influenced by by by, by the Mac itself, and but in particularly the applications that were created to launch the, the Mac. So, uh, it, it, and I think you can't separate them. You know, the games that were created, this idea of dragging and dropping, was, was a central paradigm. Uh, what the Mac was about. I mean, I did. I didn't do drag and drop it, a lot of the other games did. Uh, but this idea of you know immediate control, immediate access, uh, modeless interaction was uh, crucial. And, and, and I think your, your, your thesis is correct that these are the things that really define the next generation of gaming. Brian Thomas is the man behind one of the most fascinating but also oddball works of multimedia. Brian took the radical ideas of the Macintosh and its software, and he ran with them. His work, which was made collaboratively with a diverse cast of other creators, including a postman, was compiled in If Monks Had Macs, a hypercard compendium that defied description and earned immeasurable praise. I profiled Brian, as I noted before, and told the story behind Monks in a two-part podcast series on I have the show who The way I first heard about the Macintosh was um, I was in this printing company printing. We were printing Newsweek and Time magazine. It was big web offset printers, lots of magazine printing, lithographs. And one time at Newsweek, to kick off the Macintosh, they bought every ad in Newsweek. And we'd be printing it in the shop. And it was common for printers to hold up an ad, you know, that, that really, really fascinated them. Usually, you know, some bodacious babe and you would hold it up and go, wow, you know, she's hot or she's not hot. And I just remember seeing the first Macintosh ad where here I was just licking and sticking, you know, this is in the early days before digital printing. And we would just tape down the negatives in registration. And when we got the ads from, from Newsweek, it was pretty, they would already been, laid out it was pretty simple work we were doing and the 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 first macintosh ad where it said you too can be a knowledge worker or at least that's what i remember it as saying and here i was just a kind of a drone you know working on these putting these magazines and i held that up 
and everyone just kind of stared at it like you know where's the where's the woman where's the but it just hit me you know and i um i saved my money until i could buy a macintosh these days ben hallo works as an evolutionary biologist but for many years he was in the tech industry as a programmer with the likes of berkeley systems and apple and he also created the first color mac shareware game solarian 2 and the first screensaver game, Lunatic Fringe. And so when the IBM PC came out in 1980, uh, my parents got one of those to sort of encourage me in, in those pursuits since they could see that I was interested. And so I played around on the, on the PC and got into uh, Pascal uh, programming on, on, the, on the PC and was doing some very rudimentary game programming. Even at that point, I started trying to write my own text adventure game and stuff like that. Um, but then in 1984, the, the first Mac came out and I went over to a friend's house um, and I saw the Mac for the first time. It was, you know, the original 128K black and white, you know, and it was just so different from the IBM PC, you know, and from DOS and all of that. It just blew me away with how uh, how visual it was, how interactive it was. I had never imagined that a computer could be anything like that. And I'm a very visual person. I, I'm a very aesthetically based person. Um, so, it, yeah, it, it was just kind of a... Uh, a life-changing moment for me, I would say. Uh, and I immediately set to work convincing my parents that I needed to have a Mac. <laughs> and, uh, and happily, they were willing to go along with that. I anchored a whole chapter of my book on Charlie Jackson and his dream to represent the United States in an international sporting competition of one kind or another. But that's just a small part of his story. Some other notable achievements, he founded Silicon Beach Software, the makers of Dark Castle and Super Paint, among many other programs. He helped Jonathan Gay on the business side of what would become Flash. And he was an early investor in Wired magazine. I, I saw the Macintosh, and I'd been looking to try to do something in software even before the Macintosh came out, but I hadn't found a good opportunity. I didn't really have any major financing available to me. So the Mac came out though, and I had a little computer training business. I was teaching people how to use Apple IIs and, and IBM PCs at that point and doing instructional courses, you know, and businesses would hire me and I'd go and teach their people. And, and then I saw the Mac and I said, okay, this is the new opportunity because I'd seen what had happened with both the Apple II and the IBM PC. When they first come out, there's very little software and then people just want software. They want almost anything, you know, it's something to buy for their computer. I remember somebody walking into a store here locally and uh, had a new IBM PC said, well, any new software? I want to buy something. <laughs> and so the Macs looked like a really interesting new opportunity. And so uh, I found it. So I planned to do something. I said, okay, I'm going to do something you know, with Macintosh. So I got to start finding some people. So I founded the San Diego Macintosh user group. And the first couple of meetings were in my house. And... Uh, the very first meeting, Jonathan's father came to it, and then and and so did Eric Zocker. Eric Zocker came in person, and then Jonathan's father. And then I was talking with him afterwards, and he told me, "Yeah, my son, he won a school science fair 
award in the state of California for programming in Pascal. And I said, oh, really? You think you'd be interested in programming on a Macintosh? And he said, are you kidding? But around then, um, we, we discovered, I, you probably know this at this point, um, you couldn't program on a Macintosh. Uh, for the Macintosh. The, the tools weren't there, the compilers, etc. And so to program uh, an a piece of software for the Macintosh, you had to buy the Lisa computer. Are you aware of that? Yeah, yeah I figured that you were. All right, and so I took uh, most of my life savings and bought a Lisa. It was $10,000 in 1984. That'd be like 20000 now or something. I mean, it was, it was quite expensive. And uh, we, I John, met with Jonathan, and he, so uh, he agreed, and he said, "Yeah, let's let's do this." And we had an arrangement there where he wouldn't get any money up front, and he would get royalties uh, after the fact, which was fairly normal back then, you know, even even to somebody that's doing exactly what you want. Uh, he was not an employee, and and so he had two assets that I needed. One, he had time. And two, he didn't need money up front because I didn't have any other than you know, pretty much buying the Lisa. So bought the Lisa computer, handed it to him. He had it in his bedroom. He was the envy of his classmates at school. <laughs> so that's how we, we got together. I just took a chance on him. I, I didn't do any due diligence. I didn't you know, say, okay, prove to me you can program for this. I just That's what you do when you're a new, brash entrepreneur, very naive and not afraid <laughs> to make mis of, of things and you just do it and it turned out he's an incredible programmer does, does that answer the question enough and that's how I met Eric Zocker as well he came to the user group meeting and then the user group meetings became big and went to uni university classrooms and and that's how we met probably the majority of people that we hired in the company certainly the programmers Eric Zocker's had a long stint in senior roles at Microsoft and Adobe, but before that, Eric was just a college kid excited about computers. And just as he did with Jonathan Gay, Charlie Jackson took Eric under his wing and allowed him to do wonderful things. Most relevant to my book and, I suppose, this story. He developed a sound driver for Silicon Beach's games that could play digitized samples. A first, as far as I know, for home computer platforms. Not at all, no. Um, so the, what happened was, um, so in 84, the Mac came out. Charlie had the first Mac user group meeting in his house. I, um, I was a student at, at UC San Diego, and a computer science student. And I had been working for maybe about three years, two years or three years at the, um, at the computer center at UCSD. So I was a student computer operator. And so I got to play with all the hardware. Um, so we were in the cold room with all the mainframes and the mini computers and the plotters and the photo typesetters and the first versions of Berkeley Unix. And it was just a giant playground. And I was really into graphics. And so I was, I was uh, always figuring out how to program the pen plotters and program the photo typesetter. And uh, that wasn't nearly as fun um, as, as inter interactive graphics were. And um, I was paying attention to personal computers. And um, a friend of mine actually was a Lisa developer. So the Lisa came out before the Mac, um, and there was um, there was one Apple uh, training class for Lisa developers, for outside Lisa developers. And this this uh, particular colleague of mine, who had been at the computer center, 
was one of like the 30 students that went to the only time Apple had this Lisa developers camp. And he came back and kind of showed me and some of our other friends um, what it was like to program the Lisa. And it was really way ahead of its time because it was basically the a kind of a little a little bit heavier weight version of the of the Mac user experience. And but a lot of the concepts were the same. It had, um, you know, um, well, Bill Atkinson worked on um, kind of Lisa Draw before he worked on Mac Paint and, and Quick Draw. So I was really familiar with the Lisa. And then when we heard, and the Lisa was really expensive and um, and really physically very imposing and everything. It was kind of like a, more like a workstation. But, it, you know, at the time, CRTs were not very big and it was black and white like the Mac. But I can't remember, it was like $8,000 or something, which is, you know, equivalent of 30000 a day. So it was super expensive. And so they, they it was really cool. And it was, it was obviously the GUI was going to be a very big deal. Um, and so I was, I was like a fan of the Mac before the Mac got announced way before the Mac got announced, the rumors were happening that they were building a cheaper one. And that was really exciting. So I was kind of waiting to see, uh, I had still not ever, uh, owned a, my own personal computer. I had access to all these, uh, big, big computers, which were really fun, but, um, was waiting for the Mac to came out, come out. And then Charlie, on some kind of Unix news group said, Hey, we're having the first San Diego Mac user group meeting. And I think there were about 35 of us in Charlie's uh, office in his house. And, uh, and I stayed around cause he had a Mac and I hadn't played with one yet. Um, and we met each other and he said, uh, you know, I'm going to start a software company. I said, I'm a programmer. <laughs> uh, I want to work with you. Roy Harvey was a founding member of Ann Arbor Softworks, best known for creating the program Full Paint. But the company that was actually founded, he told me, with the intention of, of making games and interactive art. An idea that they pretty quickly gave up on after just a couple of games. He recently ended a long stint in production and management on EA Sports Madden franchise and is now the general manager of EA's Search for Extraordinary Experiences division, which is part of their R&D wing. I was a big fan of Steve Jobs, and I met him early in my career as well. Um, but I just, you know, being an Apple II guy and, you know, seeing that 1984 ad and, um, you know, I knew the, the future was not going to be DOS. And this mm-hmm. was the first, like, Windows UI. I still have my original Mac in the garage at home. Uh, I don't know if it would still boot, but, you know, the 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 Cube uh, sort of deal. But... Um, uh, just a very, very cool computer. It was so far beyond what folks were using at that point. And, um, yeah, it was just, it was a re- really, really fun time to be in computers. It was still, it, it was just starting, you know, mid-80s, early 80s. It was just starting to transition out of the hobbyist area. You know, the IBM PC had, con- the IBM PC had kind of taken over, um, you know, in the business world. And the Mac was kind of the, much like it is now, the counterculture machine and it's still like that in business um you know they had pronounced the macintosh dead three or four times over its over its life um i think if you ask some mac aficionados now they'd say it's dead again because uh all you know they don't really build anything for you know they, they haven't refreshed their laptops in a while they don't really care much about desktop machines and it's really about the ipad and the iphone and the watch these days Um, But yeah, I was always a big, big fan of what they did and how they did it. Bill Appleton created HyperCard competitor SuperCard and the game authoring tool WorldBuilder and led programming efforts on numerous other games and productivity apps. 
and co-founded a couple of companies. Uh, perhaps best known among them being the graphic adventure Titanic Adventure Out of Time, which was one of the most popular computer games of its era. He now builds cloud backend services using the latest version of technology that he originally developed for games. Yeah, so, um, you know, when uh, I was in graduate school in economics and uh, the Mac came out and I pretty much dropped everything and spent all the money I had to buy a, uh, one of the original Macs. And uh, I met, I started reading the technical documentation. I don't, I don't know if you remember Inside Macintosh. It was the kind of the Bible. Yeah, you, you, can, actually, you, can, you can even still uh, find that on the internet. Oh, man. And, uh, <clears throat> but there was really no way to write software on the machine. Um, you needed a Lisa at that time. And, but I met uh, Alon Rossman who was the founder of phone.com and he was an evangelist for Apple. And he gave me a copy of the um, assembler on floppy disk. And at the same time, I got a hold of a copy of a, of a dump of the ROMs, the 68,000 uh, source code. And I read the ROMs to learn kind of how to program on the Mac and I had some basic programming information, but really I'd never studied it. I mean, I was, in, I was in graduate economics at the time. And I just started writing software. And I wanted to uh, write uh, a really great adventure game. Uh, but I felt like in order to do that, I needed to write a great authoring tool to build adventure games. And, and that's when I built World Builder. And this was circa 1984. Um, and uh, World Builder was the first rich media authoring tool, as far as I know. Glenda Adams was for a long time synonymous with Mac gaming. After years of bouncing around the industry, mostly doing porting projects big and small, she co-founded Westlake Interactive, which for its few years on the scene was the best porting company in the business. Then she spent about a decade in management at Aspire. She works on mobile games now. Um, yeah, I think I mean I was kind of a gamer from early on. I when I first got a, an Apple II was my first computer, and you know before I learned to program or anything, we were playing whatever we had on their lemonade stand, even <laughs> you know, and Oregon Trail stuff like that, um, and you know just collecting games and playing all the different ones and as I started taught myself programming early on um, that was kind of what I always wanted to do I always wanted to program games too so so I was apple apple person forever and then and then when the mac came out I was instantly instantly wanted one <laughs> and so I had one of the very first 128k macs back in 84 um, stood in line at the university and got it got one um, for some exorbitant amount of money, even even with the university discount, I guess I I had seen the Lisa at some user groups like a year or so, you know, a couple of years before. And I mean, at that point, I mean, just having used nothing but you know command line and you know Apple II stuff, it's like it just blew my mind you know, to see 
windows and graphics like that, the graphical user interface and that level of, of kind of detail and fidelity and the fonts and all that, you know, direct control, clicking point and click. So we, you know, we all, obviously, everybody knew kind of the rumor mill. And when they heard that the Mac was coming out, they were actually going to do a you know, consumer level Lisa kind of, um, I mean, that first Mac, even though it was tiny and the screen was so small and the little floppy disks and all that, still, it was just, it was just kind of mind blowing. I mean, to see that, you know, that leap in just interface and, and I was always kind of interested in the kind of interface design part of things too. So that, that whole kind of just paradigm shift was really, really it just intrigued me. And I mean, I could kind of tell it, this, this was obviously going to be the future. This was where, where the computer stuff was going. Um, so that's why, I, I mean, even with just that first Mac, doing nothing but Mac Paint and Mac Write, you know, I wanted to be able to do that. I wanted to be able to play with that. And you'd sit there and play with Mac Paint for hours, you know, just being able to interact with the, the screen and interact with the, the tools and stuff that directly was really just, mm. you know, something yeah, that was I totally was, new at the time. Um, and you can probably tell I, I'm a lot younger than you. Um, so so I was not yet born when the first Mac came out, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah. So my dad oh, bought the <laughs> Mac young. Plus um, when that came out, um, and that was basically the first computer that I got to use. So you know, whenever I was big enough to first use a computer, that was what I used. And I adored that computer so much. They had so they had so much personality too. You know, everything else was these just these boxy cubes. You know, and just. And, you know, that smiling Mac, when it booted up, you know, it was just, it just, it just had a whole different feeling, I think. Um, so I think that was part of what kind of attracted me to the Mac. But I mean, also, I mean, because I'd always been a long time kind of Apple fan, you know, fangirl, I guess I was always, always kind of liked their idea of, you know, software and hardware integration and just really ease of use and, and, you know, focusing on, on the user experience rather than just like, how fast a processor it has or how much RAM or whatever, you know. After more than three decades plying his trade, with lots of work published both in digital and physical forms, Scott Kim is a world-renowned puzzle designer. He's also an expert on ambigrams, which are words that read the same upside down as they do right side up, thanks to some graphic design and typography magic. My impulse is always to share what I know. I'm a teacher at heart, so I wanted to make a game that would teach other people how to make ambigrams, which means thinking about symmetry and thinking about um, understanding uh, letter how letters are constructed, basically teaching some of the skills of a typeface designer. When I saw, uh, in 1984, I saw Susan Kerr, um, one of the original Macintosh team, um, she was the artist on the team and did all the original icons. She demoed Mac Paint. It was probably the most memorable demo I've ever seen. Mac, the original Mac Paint was a very fine piece of work, um, work even though it had to work within severe limits. And uh, that demo, at the end of the demo, you knew how to use the game, the program. Um, it's credit both to her and to the designer, Bill Atkinson, who designed it. So, uh, I fell in love with MacPaint, enjoyed using it, and decided I would try to build a game within MacPaint. Um, 
to be played using the Mac Paint tools. That's an unconventional idea. I got pretty entranced by it, uh, by that challenge. Um, I haven't seen a whole lot of, of other attempts to do that, but I think it's a good, uh, I've seen a few tutorials uh, like for drawing programs or word processors where the tutorial is using a file, uh, you know, you could do a word processor tutorial using a, a, a document that tells you how to edit itself. It's kind of fun. I got entranced by the idea of making software without programming. These days it's called web pages, but that was way earlier. So I ended up doing that. So it was a game where it was a series of Mac Paint files. It included the instructions. Each page file included a, a, some written instructions and a puzzle to solve, like select this area and then figure out how to flip it around in order to make some other shape. Um, worked pretty well. Um, I, it being my first game, however, I, I certainly wouldn't have done it that way then. I learned it a ton, but uh, it wasn't a very practical product. Um, uh, so, but it did get some attention and it got uh, Michael Feinberg's attention. I was uh, getting interested in, in the game world and he saw what I could do and really wanted me to work on his next game, Heaven and Earth. So uh, that's what led to that. He's the one person here that I've included who didn't contribute directly to any Mac games. Indirectly, his, his games were ported to the Mac. But Tony Goodman is still very much notable here, as he founded Age of Empires creator Ensemble Studios, which initially was a side project for his consulting company, Ensemble Corporation. My roommate in college, who started a ensemble corporation with me so in 1984 our first year of college he got his parents to buy him one of the it was one of the first years a mac was was out maybe the, the and uh apple was doing this thing with universities at the university of texas where but having a macintosh and, you know, the, in our dorm room was just the most amazing thing for me. For a computer nerd to be able to have a toy like that, it was fantastic. I loved those early Apple days. I because I had known a PC up till then, and it really hadn't. There wasn't much to be excited about. But the first time you, first time I saw a Mac and. The graphical user interface. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a pretty amazing thing to go from a DOS prompt to a mouse-driven user interface. And just see how everything worked that way. Had their Mac Word. I think it was called Mac Word. Mac Write. That's it. Yeah. And and Paint. Mac Paint. You draw a squiggly line and flood fill it with a pattern. I, it was pretty, it was magic. <laughs> 